Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about thinking big. I'm Jenna Mathiason, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. Hello, hello. Today we've got a special guest host in the studio. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello both. I'm Simon Stevens, and I'm an objects conservator for the Science Museum Group based in Wiltshire. Nice. Hi. I hate it both. And we've just made you eat pizza with us, so FYI, we do bribe all guest hosts. Yeah. And if you're willing to come to my house, then you may be fed either fish and chips or pizza. It is your choice. Yeah, C-word fuel pizza. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, today we're going to talk about big stuff. Huge things. <laughs> What's huge? What's big? So I suppose I think of big stuff as being like larger than two people can lift together. I would say larger than one person. Oh, do you? Uh, than one person's mm-hmm. capability to pick up. Mm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, what's manual handling person's weight lifting capabilities? Oh, is there something like 220? 25 kilograms, something like that. 25? <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Is this like how much we can lift as human beings or what? Or, yeah, or... How much it's By Health and Safety Act to yeah. be able to lift. Oh, nice. Like, okay. So, I yeah. think I have had some manual handling training at some point, but it wasn't that specific. <laughs> I mean, I think I struggled with 15, to be honest, <laughs> because I'm not that strong. I think I'm stubborn, not strong. (laughs) And those aren't good manual handling things. Like, it tends to be along the lines of science and industry and... Okay, yeah. That kind mm -hmm. of... Yeah. Okay, because I'm trying to envisage what kind of oversized collections actually are. For me, I would think, obviously, like, industrial bits and bobs. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. bits of equipment and that sort of thing, like... But then we've also got the equipment side where it's like actual scientific equipment and bit, bits of the first computer, which is huge. And, you know, like... Yeah, things like you Pegasus get some... engine. But then you also have, we have vehicles, uh, aircraft. Yeah, I was going to say. The transport Boats, section transport of that. Section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Shall we get you, Simon, to talk about your experience and what led you to the Science Museum group at Rawton? Yeah. I wouldn't call myself a large objects conservator. I kind of just fell into that for, for my own natural interests. Mm-hmm. So previously, before conservation, I was tinker with bikes and cars quite a lot. And in Cardiff, my internship was based in Imperial War Museums, where I helped oh, with the large yeah. oh, object nice. decants for the transformation. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Yeah, so that really probably piqued my interests in the conservation of large objects then. And shortly after that internship, I randomly met a fellow in a pub who had <laughs> a museum... Well, <laughs> well, he just overheard my Imperial War Museum chat to uh, some other conservators. And uh, he approached me and said, oh, I've got a tank museum. So I went off. Casual. Yeah. Yeah. And would I like to help with him? So it was uh, mainly large objects and working objects there. I mean, we're talking actual tanks. Uh, yeah, 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 actual tanks. Nice. And it was more of a private collection. Sure, Rather yeah. than a museum, but he had school days there. Oh. So I wor- worked there for a couple of years till I finished my degree. And then I went up to National Museum of Scotland's Museum of Flight 
I worked there for a few years. Oh, shame. And that thing, things got really big then. So, <laughs> wow, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're talking, yeah, Concord. Yeah. Uh, uh, Vulcan bombers. From there onwards, I've you know, started working from the Science Museum back in 2016. Nice. And, yeah, just kind of been more interested in the larger objects of things and the difficulties they kind of pose. Yeah. For conservation and yeah, logistics. Objects conservation scaled up massively. Mm, yeah. But you've also got experience as a mechanic, haven't you? Which you started off with, and that's a, that's a, yeah. that's an area of the discussion I'd like to get, get into a bit later. That the the other skills that are required, mm-hmm. or the other things that you need to be aware of, that isn't just conservation. Yeah, um, yeah. I did. Um, I was a bit of an amateur mechanic, mm-hmm. and it certainly has helped. I do like tinkering <laughs> with objects, so I've got no qualms in sort of taking apart. And that's why where I work in the moment is mm. great because it's industrial machinery and science collections mm. so yeah there's quite a lot of uh, fettling and taking things apart for treatment and stuff like that so yeah i love that because that sounds <laughs> terrifying from my point of view whereas if i'm forced to take anything apart i'm always living in fear of not being able to put it back together <laughs> that is just one of my innate fears of ah shit oh, yeah, i'm the same yeah yeah, yeah 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 i'm the same so i've also worked at as you know the mm-hmm. science and industry museum <laughs> i so i've you know got various experience with working with large objects but yeah. i would never have had the confidence to take something apart. I got to the point of being able to identify the different parts of various mechanical and yeah. industrial bits of machinery and the kind of things like oil reservoirs and stuff yeah. like that. The things that you see that you don't necessarily know how to identify if you're not familiar with the stuff. But I wouldn't have taken it apart. I suppose I'm fortunate I had the ability to, when I was growing up with my cars, just to go, oh, there's something slightly wrong with the engine. And... I would, half a day later, it would be in bits on the floor and go, oh, <laughs> I should have to get it back together again. So I it's suppose it's a lifetime through, of practice in some ways. Yeah, yeah. So I would then just figure out a way how to mm. to do it. But I love like, documenting and trying to figure out how things go back together. And yeah, it really does help with... So for some of these things, I guess that you might actually have really good documentation to begin with, because if these things were constructed in the modern era, they might have blueprints and stuff like yeah. that, right? Yeah absolutely vital with most of our objects have technical files oh, thank god so, for that. yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> which uh, yeah i del- delve into quite a lot and yeah they if i need to be i need to get into an object i will request that and you know see how it comes apart yeah amazing but yeah they are large objects so i wouldn't necessarily always be able to uh, afford the time to be able to take it all apart and things yeah of like course that. yeah so, yeah See what significance is yeah. of if it's going on display, was it form or function? What I would like to actually, what I would like to preserve in that respect. So, yeah, I would. Yeah. You have to do that with large objects, I think, because some of them I couldn't spend 400 hours on one thing. I just simply don't have the time. Yeah, no, sure. So, but I could easily could. You can, I have done it in the past where I have been able to, like up in Museum of Flight, I've been uh, preparing uh, aircraft there. And I think it was up to 500 hours I was spent on paint consolidation of about five aircraft. Oh, my aircraft. God. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. I was in preparation for them to come out of the hangars and go into temporary storage. They needed to be able to be moved, so without any loss of further loss of paint. Wow. And then also withstand uncontrolled environmental conditions for yeah, sure. a period of a few months. So, yeah, it was 
Yeah, five hundred hours upside down underneath an airplane. Oh my God. <laughs> wow, to it then. <laughs> no, no, just yeah, have oh, a little uh, platform. Yeah, oh, I can wow. go up and down on. Amazing. So, injecting. I mean, I'm afraid of heights. Component. So, I mean, that's not a great start <laughs> to any of this, right? It's, it's like, I'm not happy if I have to go up on scaffolding at all. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, another thing with large objects is, yeah. You might, find you might have to go up yeah. some, you know, up to uh, <laughs> up to the height of them. So yeah, that's fair enough. Really. <laughs> yeah. But how often would you say that you kind of need to conserve the inside mechanical bits that aren't necessarily being seen mm-hmm. for something to go on display, for example? Because if it's part of what you're trying to preserve, yeah, but it might not be something that's seen to the public. Like, how often is that a really important bit? Just out of curiosity. It does depend on if it came into the museum still working mm. or still mechanically moving. I would definitely try to preserve that as much as possible, even if it's just a static display. When you strip down an object, find out it's, it could easily be put back into working condition. I wouldn't want to just move it into um, on display and let that then corrode. So it doesn't take priority. So I say do what you can. Yeah. 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 And that is kind of what we um, our remit is with displays and things yeah. like that. So yeah, I don't spend too much time. But say if it was a a vehicle that's come in, a recently acquisitioned vehicle, I would go through all hazard checks, and then procedure would then follow would be to drain oils, replace them with sort of. What are your hazard bit- checks like? Hazard checks very <laughs> thorough <laughs> when it comes to uh, particularly transport. They would we I would have a form basically i would go through that and start off with say i say talk about an aircraft then it'll be the dates dates that it would be manufactured and then see whether it's asbestos if it was military might still have asbestos in it check for radioactive components Mm, tasty yeah (laughs) and sort of pressurized Gases, Ooh. yeah, hydraulics, corrosive fluids, Ooh. explosives. Yeah, there's an endless list. <laughs> the list I can't, goes on. I don't want to even look at it. Oh, God. <laughs> there's things I probably would have missed, but yeah. Oh, God. When I'm going through it. And then, depending on what I've flagged from there, mm. usually getting in the specialists, especially when it comes to explosives. So, sort of um, ejection seats and canopies. Oh, yeah. Of course. And then, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because in my head I was thinking, what could possibly be explosive? Oh, I yeah. see, yeah. Because you need yeah. to detonate that. Oh, yeah, of mm. course. Airliners will have the um, oxygen tanks in, which yeah, you know, drop down from you, mm. from above. Uh, those have to be removed and, yeah, degassed. Yeah, so it's... Love it. <laughs> That's yeah. something interesting about industrial, scientific and transport collections that aren't, I suppose, aren't necessarily just about large objects, but are so, so much more commonly found in large, large objects. Mm. That, of course, you've got your object and every part of the object is a valuable and a p- important original component of the object. But also there's some things that could literally kill you just <laughs> yeah. by accident. <laughs> yeah. The inherent nature of it being yeah. a large object, yeah. its weight, yeah. its weight distribution, whether it's st- uh, still stable mm. structurally, wow. intact. Yeah. yeah. it's uh, So by it's nature, <laughs> your your intervention has to be significantly more interventive than just I have this lacquered box kind mm-hmm. of thing I am cleaning it and putting it in store you've got to take bits away from it and 
replace oils and like yeah. structurally support areas that could snap off and kill someone. Yeah, that then would um, fall into the what the object's inten- uh, intention is. Yeah. So yeah, if it was to go on display mm-hmm. or if it was to go on to be used uh, as a working object. Yeah. Again, which um, large objects are usually considered good candidates for. Mm-hmm. Uh, then yeah, you would have to yeah comply with health, modern health and safety um, laws and yeah general health and safety for your own sake as well and the science museum has really good um hazard and collections training which which makes sense (laughs) does that change your attitude if you've got objects that used to be working and Mm. so have been treated and maintained as in replacement bits does that change your attitude to the conservation of the object or do you just take it as i'm just maintaining this in the same way even though some of the bits aren't original well, if the object has been used and has been like a working object which mm-hmm. throughout its life or a working thing throughout its life and those modifications have occurred through its life, yeah, I would preserve those. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't... When it comes to that kind of stuff, I would rather do minimal intervention Yeah, and preserve the fabric of what's... how the object existing. is coming, existing, yeah. yeah. Do you keep a lot of spares and stuff like that? It sounds like an insane question, but it's one that I asked once when we went to the Fleet Air Arm Museum, which I think we talked briefly about in the military episode that we did. Oh, yeah. I like the Fleet Air Arm Museum. Oh, it's amazing. Very I love good. David Morris. Oh, yeah, because they basically had, like, ob- obviously they have loads of planes, and then they also had, like, mm. a whole um, store full of bits. Yeah. And that was very much so that they could replace bits as necessary on the planes. Yeah. And I just thought that was really interesting that they had kind of a, not a leftover section, but a bit section, where it's yeah. just, like, almost like a hardware store where it, you, you can go, you can and, go and find get yeah, the, like the a, appropriate material for that plane. Yeah, like you is, would have in a mechanics. Yeah, 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 exactly. It was it was very back, practical which, like that. And like I was just kind of curious like what your stance on it is. I mean, I don't think either one is wrong or anything. It was more mm-hmm. of a, I'm curious what, 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 what you guys do. Mainly working on static objects. Yeah. Then I wouldn't replace. I don't have a parts store unfortunately (laughs) that would be amazing (laughs) I could go and get bits and pieces from if I do need to um, kind of replace parts for structural reasons and that then I would always try and use the uh, originals so aircraft components uh, bolts and things Mm -hmm. I would go to through an aircraft company and replace it with a necessary bolt Uh, I would label those new parts Mm -hmm. uh, new replacement parts on stamp that into it so you can always tell there are kind of with um, new advancements in 3D printing now, you can actually, I've seen a few, a Porsche, uh, vintage Porsche dealership, 3D printing uh, out of stock parts for old. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I thought if I wasn't able to find a part or... That means that there was there could be a way for you to kind yeah. of have it manufactured. That's so interesting. Yeah, so they would kind yeah. of manufacture it. I think it's a plastic, yeah. metal, carbon fibre um, material. Cool. And is that something that could run? It could, uh, yeah, it could work? Yeah, yeah, it's structurally oh, wow. stable. So if you have to replace a structural part with it, it would... Oh, nice. So, and it would be 3D printed 3D to... Printing. Exactly to the original specifications so just like an OEM part which would be that's really cool amazing yeah that is really cool is that something so. that you think could be like brought into the conservation fill I think so yeah. yeah yeah. is it expensive? 
Um, I mean, it can yeah, be cheap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it as soon as start getting involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, that's a really specialist thing to do because it's not something you can mass produce because it's something, a one-off that you need. That's true. You know, there, there's a lot. So much like conservation should cost because it's very specialist. I guess that should cost because it's very specialist, if you think about it. Yeah, that's true. It might annoy quite a few people in the fact that that might actually be taking sort of older traditional skills out of the of the loop if um oh yeah fabrication of certain parts and, yeah that's a know. good point as well yeah that yeah. is a good point well, have a mixture of the both well yeah quite <laughs> yeah no quite i suppose one of the things that fleet air Arm museum by the way was that they had a lot of you know um engineers that they then retrained yeah. to kind of have more of a conservation mentality as they worked on the planes yeah. which i thought was a really excellent concept as a kind of way of keeping those skills in the profession i suppose or like in, in welcome those skills into the profession but, but you know it, it has a slightly different it has to have a different approach when it's a large object or you know a yeah. vehicle or something it, because just like you say it needs to be structurally safe and all that stuff and it's it's an interesting thing that i talked to someone i know who does a lot of like sculpture and statues and architectural bits and bobs on buildings mm-hmm. and that sort of thing again a lot of scaffolding loads of scaffolding mm-hmm. and hivers vests yes <laughs> a lot of risk assessments but she does a lot of stuff that's really really hardcore she does say that you do need something that's so much more hardcore than what you would normally introduce to say you know if you had a ceramic object you would never put like this sort of epoxy on it but because it's a that needs to be so structural and needs to be safe for the public and all that stuff mm. it is what you use like it might not be super reversible and it, it might be that it blends in really well so it might be that it looks really restored as opposed to conserved mm-hmm. yeah. but like it's just what you've got to do to make it safe and I thought those were really interesting kind of dilemmas that mm. like I don't necessarily have in, have in my working practice but it's really interesting to hear about as people who work on much huger things mm, yeah well, I, my go-to stuff can usually be more proprietary brands of sort of corrosion inhibitors mm-hmm. and yeah. coating systems simply because of the, the nature of the object if it's going outside or what kind of conditions yeah. it's going to be in something where like paraloid B72 is just not going to cut it yeah. so. what do yeah. you use then what are your conservation materials um, for example if I was sort of if it needs to be structural mm. so my epoxies are mm-hmm. um, epoxy putty right uh, yeah so and I still go for araldite mm-hmm 2020 yeah corrosion inhibitors and rust converters mm-hmm. those are quite those are always in stock i'm doing several tests at the moment so to see if uh, what corrosion inhibitors would work best um what has an element of reversibility to them oh, okay there's quite a lot of stuff is like a thick waxy coating mm-hmm. yeah yeah, to yeah be like a oh was it wax lacquer which looks nasty so something that it's, essentially prevents prevents it any further corrosion yes mm, yeah. yeah um yeah just trying to stop that corrosion cell mm. at the beginning um so i have found a few and i'm just got a few coupons dotted around mm-hmm, the hangers yeah. <laughs> and I'll, <laughs> I'll continue to monitor them for for a while and see that and sounds exciting can i jump back to something we mentioned just now large objects on display i spoke to jim white who is an object mounting and installation specialist at the imperial war museums i really wanted to get him to he he did say yes to an interview but i've not been able to get in touch with him um unfortunately and he did so i met him at the make it float um day of of talks um in norwich in september and his paper was amazing because he was basically talking about how to mount large aircraft 
and like you know when you go into the Imperial War Museums and there's mm. all the planes above you that essentially he did that cool. and there are a number of different things that totally amazed me like the fact that there's no kind of governmental red regulations on the mounting of large objects in museums so like yeah. there's nothing it's totally insane um, like <laughs> oh. weight regulations yeah. or checking regulations or anything like that oh, um, so obviously the, the I, mean, I like my brain went two ways with that one way was why would the government care and the second one was wait people are walking underneath it exactly <laughs> so immediately I was conflicted <laughs> exactly so yeah he was talking about basically what IWM does in order to ensure that the objects and the people are safe and oh, there's right. a lot of building checks and object checks and you know the the lines between the building and the object that's keeping it up yeah. th- those are checked as well and it's really very thorough and that's cool rigorous I mean that's good that pleases yeah. me yeah well yeah, yeah. exactly it's, it's, I mean imagine it's really you'd good. have to have some mechanical or structural engineers to assess yeah. things about the aircraft yeah yeah yeah, so yeah, yeah. I mean I can totally see it yeah. like being taken into account to like new builds and stuff like if you know that you're going to put large things up yeah. on the walls for example or hanging from the ceiling I'm thinking of oh, there was an amazing article in Icon News recently which was about these giant figureheads of ships and they were all mm. going to be mounted in this big oh, hall yeah. yeah but obviously that's that's a new building being prepared yeah. for this uh-huh. so like it's all being taken into account mm. it must be a, such a different ballpark to take a building that's already built and go look we're gonna, we're gonna put a tank here why yeah. not uh, you know, like, yeah. whilst really cool also just, just terrifying oh yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah, that really struck me when I was working in uh, the Science and Industry Museum. We were decanting a very great number of really, really varied objects. And we were working with museum object and art handling specialists, um, Martin Speed, and their lifting contractor, which was um, Jay McKenzie from from Salisbury. Yeah, yeah. Jim or Jimmy. Yeah. He, have you worked with him? Yeah. He's, he's great. I really enjoyed yeah. working with him. And it was the, the way that they thought about objects and lifting objects was amazing. And just the kind of, the huge scale that you're looking at there. The, the, yeah. Like the, we moved an object that was six tons. I mean, if you've never moved large objects before, this will sound totally alien, but the huge crane, yes, the crane that we got it out of the building with, also weighed it at the yeah. same time. That's and crazy cool. he was he was Clever. looking at the object going, I just don't know where it's keeping the weight. Where is, where is the weight? How is this six tons? But it was, <laughs> and it's... You know, that's the kind of oh, that's weird. The provision that you do when you pick when you they were taking picking up an object when they don't know the weight of it, it's insane because you've got to allow for. Oh, I would love to see something like that. Yeah, they do pose a huge logistical mm, nightmare yeah. challenge. But also yeah. like coming at it from like somewhere having not ever worked anywhere where that's kind of something that's done regularly that kind of means that it's just so big and terrifying and unknown that it's just so strange to me to think that you can even pick that up like how what (laughs) what do people do yeah sometimes yeah you've got to take a a leaf out of the industrial side of things and then also try and think a bit out of the box when i was in museum of flight we had we were installing all the aircraft back into the uh, refurbished hangars and what had been where they decided to put all the aircraft was based on a 132 scale drawing of the hangar and then the curators dropping little 132 scale models of the aircraft into the little first of all that's adorable I mean, yeah that, it was really it looked amazing <laughs> but then um logistically installing them into the positions that they had 
put them in. Oh no, that's a bit uh, of a different beast. Yeah, as you've yeah. only got like three points of uh, turning circle, and uh, we're pushing it with tractors. Yeah, we had to think of how we're going to slide this two meters to the side and put the nose out. Uh, we actually had drilled holes into the fl- new new floor oh, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> some mounting brackets. Uh, and then we rolled them uh, the wheels onto two Teflon sheets and used turfers, so big ratchets, mm-hmm. to then slide it sort of sideways. Oh my god! And then get them off the Teflon. So it was it was a head scratching moment <laughs> to begin with, but then because it was so easy to move, then we could oh it needs to go another four millimeters this way. Mm. <laughs> Uh, so it was actually quite a good system. So I wow. recommend that to anyone who's moving large stuff. It needs to go sideways. Teflon is wow. your friend. Yeah. <laughs> Teflon is your friend. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the inventiveness of object movement that mm. I really enjoyed when I was working with, with large objects. Mm-hmm. And just using the situation around you and the just the lifting equipment itself is really interesting mm. like car jacks and just it just goes it's all extremely heavy isn't it actually you're, yeah. you're doing large object lifting and some most of the time I couldn't even lift the equipment that was used for lifting the large objects yeah um, I'm a fan of not really lifting anything I'll get the machines to do it <laughs> I mean that's fair enough yeah, yeah. <laughs> very lazy step one of object handling though yeah yeah mechanise mechanise yeah. everything yeah weight distributions fascinating as mm-hmm. well isn't it because you can have hidden weight loading yeah yeah doing um, always test lifting where we're moving stuff with mm. the forklifts yeah and that's always a scary moment. <laughs> Even if it's only an inch off the floor, where, where is that? Where is that weight distribution? It's oh, not, crazy! It's not like a big pallet of beans, where you know a center. <laughs> you know, it could be right at the top, over yeah. to the other side, yeah. overhanging. Yeah. Have so you ever got scary. it wrong and dropped something? Uh, I haven't, no. You I've haven't. never dropped anything, no. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Simon's looking smug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've dropped something. <laughs> Do I want to say this? Yeah. Okay. Um, we were lifting a large lathe, and even now we're not entirely sure what happened. We were lifting it on a forklift. It was stable. It was test lifted. It mm-hmm. was by some foresight. I thought I'm not happy with this just going as it mm. was, and I strapped it to the the equipment and made sure there was nothing that could, you know. It couldn't fall off, uh, even though it looked like it wouldn't go anywhere. We lifted, lifted, lifted. It moved uh, the length of in a whole extremely long store, totally fine. We needed to put it down in order to um, safely do something else. Lifted it, immediately it fell off. Mm. And it, there was yeah. there was no change whatsoever with anything that we did. By it fell off, obviously it didn't fall off because... <laughs> We'd strapped it safely, (laughs) and we were all safe distances away and following all of the safety procedures. But um, it it just it just went, and that was a case of a new, very heavy motor being strapped to the top, being attached rather to the top of the object. Okay, changing its center of gravity, which changed its center of gravity. But what we didn't understand was how that had somehow how had that changed? How did it Mm -hmm. suddenly? seemed to be top heavy when before yeah. it just wasn't yeah. so i think the lesson i took out of that was number one always take extra precautions 
Fair. Even if you think that it won't go anywhere at Fair. all. Extra straps. Extra straps. <laughs> And stay back. And yeah. well, you, well, I mean, I say wear your steel toe cap boots as if steel toe cap boots would have done anything if the <laughs> size had fallen on me. And also the solution that we found to that when it got to the point where we, we didn't feel that we could lift it safely, um, we got the uh, lifting contractor in to come and move it for us and they did it in yeah. like half an hour. It's uh, terrifying yeah. when it when you do have to lift something of that like sheer size yeah. and yeah it can be a heart in your mouth moment yeah yeah so, yeah, yeah. So. i'd like to reference quickly um a talk that we saw at icon 19 by eleanor schofield and she managed the movement of lifting various huge parts of the mary rose into position um, and her talk was essentially how to lift the ridiculously giant i don't even remember which part of the boat it was ship it was sorry but it was oh, yeah. one of the huge pieces was that the one which said you had to give it a little push at the end? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the entire hall just went. Ah! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because um, conservators. Yeah, because conservators. And one of the things saying, "Oh, I wished I'd just cut it in half," because it was. It got to the point where she was worried about people. Yeah, uh, life and limb. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's the one of the interesting things about moving large objects, isn't it? That you've yes, of course. The object is important, <laughs> yeah. but actually, yeah, we just want to make sure the people are safe. We were, we were talking about mounting things and how cool that is. Mm-hmm. And something I really enjoyed was Nigel Larkin, who is a natural history conservator, uh, yeah. um, mm. did a talk about mounting a big whale skeleton, I want to say. Like oh, a huge, wow. huge thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and working with the people who could actually weld something that could actually hold this and mm. suspend it beautifully mm-hmm. uh, in a in a museum setting which was just an amazing talk and if I can find a link to that I will also link to that because that was a really cool talk so um, I mean unsurprisingly even skeletons I mean especially dinosaurs mm-hmm. and stuff like that right are yeah. also huge things they that are, need yes. mounting and there are and also dippies going That's on cool. tour obviously Yay, so dippy. you know <laughs> yeah I've realized that there's actually there is a lot of large stuff that isn't Furniture, paintings, and source natural history people. <laughs> we didn't forget you. So, when you're lifting large things, regardless of whether it's dinosaurs or large engines, yeah. <laughs> sometimes you need help, as we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What kind of help is available? Obviously, shout out to Jimmy McKenzie, yeah, no. <laughs> Martin Speed, who we've already mentioned. <laughs> uh, most recently, we've had a few vehicle exhibitions or loans going out. So the 1888 Benz uh, has um, gone to the V&A, and I was really impressed by the um, transport they sent. So it was Cars Europe. They have uh, a truck that the whole back slides off, so it allows you to take in a, a vehicle completely flat. So there's no ramps, there's no winches what? so there's no pressure points on it it's uh and then it lifts it you, ma- you strap it all down then it lifts it onto the ah so it kind of lifts like a tray yeah like oh a tray my god that's just, amazing yeah i was really impressed with that so wow yeah just there specifically for mm-hmm. sort of supercars and things yeah. which don't have any towing points on them yeah of course which, yeah. Uh, you can drag up a, a large ramp oh uh, i didn't i didn't even imagine that they wouldn't have towing points is that too like is that too practical for a supercar? <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, too ugly. I suppose in theory you could drive it on, but then if it's yeah. not in a drivable condition, then... For the um, driverless exhibition, we had the Citroen uh, DS, which went on display. And when it's on, when it's working, the hydroelastic suspension pumps all the um, suspension components up, so it's 
raises it off the ground. Oh, but of course, as it's not a working you've object, not got it's the, yeah on the floor. Oh yeah. So what? Yeah, it's, it, well, it's about seventy mil off the floor. Then we couldn't use ramps, so we then had to of use. Course. A specialist wheel clamps which then connect to a crane and oh then you precariously lift it off into wow. <laughs> you, you get specialist sand but yeah it was um you know just learning curves you always mm. overcome these challenges yeah. Yeah, somehow <laughs> it has to be done <laughs> i was really Maybe. amazed and i continue to be amazed how many large objects have been built into museum and gallery spaces mm-hmm that they obviously it was a great idea at the time (laughs) that yes we want to have this like part of electrical plants in your gallery and so why not helicopter it in and now it's there forever and then build on top of it and there's an example i'm thinking of and the the options were essentially how to get how to remove this the options were cut it up and take it out in pieces or leave it there forever and that's that's it's insane that we've yeah <laughs> it's insane <laughs> and, and she's but insane and yeah maybe not the best forward thinking ever maybe we have uh, examples of that with good intentions where we've brought in aircraft into mm. the hangars and they've been in there for decades yeah and now the hangar doors don't open <gasps> oh, so, yeah. oh no so so you'd, have, you'd have to <laughs> take a, a situation wall off. yeah, yeah. Can the doors be repaired or would this be a case of somehow get the doors open then move everything all at once? Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. Which hangar is that? D3. Okay. (laughs) If you know Rotten. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will all know Rotten soon. Oh, yes. Because we have a special tour from something that we recorded a couple of weeks ago. Simon? Hello, Chloe. Where are we? We're at the Science Museum in Rawton, otherwise known as the National Collection Centre now. That's a new name for it, isn't it? Yeah, or NTC for short. And what's this fancy car we've just got into? This is a hydrogen-powered car. We should be going around cycling today. It's got some big stickers on it, Science Museum group stickers on it. Yeah, we'll stick it up. (laughs) So Simon has very kindly agreed to give me a tour, give us a tour of um, the Science Museum group at Rawton Storage Site, which is their (laughs) large object store and soon to be the one collection storage facility for the Science Museum group. And it's made up of... Lots of different buildings and lots of different spaces and the stats and stuff we can we can ask Simon for later. But we'll be driving around in this fancy posh car, mm-hmm. which emits only water, um, and it's a lovely rainy day for it. Yeah, uh, welcome to Rawton. So we're driving along uh, airfield and uh, we've just passed loads of sheep in a field, um, and now we're driving between two solar. Fields of solar panels, is that right? Yeah, this is one of the largest um, solar parks in the UK. It is huge, it's honestly huge. So it's in the middle of the, it's sort of quite flat landscape for people who don't know the area, um, with big undulating hills and stuff. Is it a road or is it a landing strip? This is a landing strip, and it's actually a mile from uh, the bottom to the top here, so... And there's like signs saying, be careful of prancing deer and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a bit of a wildlife sanctuary as well. We have deer here, there's lots of hares, pheasants, 
the old seagull. <laughs> There's a crow over there. <laughs> and then the buildings look, so we've just passed two buildings and they look different ages. Um, one of them is covered in polythene, it looks like. That's the old control tower. Ah, so it's a historic site, isn't it? And it's yeah. it's got the kind of, the infrastructure, remains of the infrastructure still there. Yeah, it's 1940s, it was built for the RAF. So and they've owned it up until 1979 when the Science Museum took over. We're now, so we're still driving next to the uh, solar panel um, field, if that gives you some perspective of how large it is. Um, and we're now approaching a collection of buildings, which is, is this what you're calling engineering? Yep, so we have the engineering building here, which is where our labs are currently. And again, it's an old REF uh, workshop for vehicles, so makes a quite good lab for large objects. <laughs> Is it normally more windy than this? Oh yeah. There's the um, Bath University's Hive project, so materials testing. Uh, that building there is where they used to hang the silk parachutes to dry. So it's quite nice, we're walking through um, grassy gardens really isn't it it's there's roads there's uh, driveways and roads and stuff but there's also hedges and trees and little yeah. fences and stuff going through a adorable gate that's where i have a large objects lab we have a small objects lab and a paper lab and an analysis room So we've just gone into the engineering building in through a side door um, and Simon's gone to turn off the alarm system and it's a huge space. So yeah, this is about nine meters wide by 26 meters wide uh, length. So we have a one ton gantry crane that runs a whole length. Think hangar warehouse if you're not familiar with this kind of building. Um, and next to me there's um, a large metal rod attached to the gantry with straps. So think padded straps. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's an x-ray machine. So our uh, gantry crane does come in quite handy. I don't know the full weight of it yet, but the weighing beams are there to uh, weigh it. <gasps> oh, can we do that now? Yeah, we can do that now. Yeah. So Simon, you've got a page of stats and interesting facts about the site. What information do you have for us about the site? Well, it was built by the RAF in 1940 as uh, an airfield or maintenance airfield. So it's 545 acres. That's the, huge. Yeah, it's very large. Yeah, with three runways. So the one that we just drove down was a mile long. And, and there's the, three of them. Yeah, there's three. There's um, seven hangars. So SMG took over the uh, site in 1979. And we, uh, we've been storing the largest of the objects of the Science Museum Group's collections uh, since then. And we also have the library and archives on site as well. Of the whole of the Science Museum Group? Yep. So we have 35,000 3D objects, considered <laughs> medium to large objects. And there's 500,000 2D objects, so uh, paintings, library and archives. I'll correct myself there. We have nine aircraft hangars. I love that you have to keep track of all the buildings that you have to work in. That's crazy. Two of them we um, 
One of them's not in use at the moment. Right. Uh, one of them's actually hired out for uh, other museums to oh, right. store objects in. Um, Which other museums are there? there? Museum of London. Oh, <laughs> cool. Okay. The ninth building is an all-purpose built store, uh, which built in 1994. That's environmentally controlled. Oh, my God. <gasps> so he's just unhooked some massive chains for this gantry. Do you mind holding oh God. a chain? No, it's fine. Yeah. What do I have to do? Uh, just hold that there. Like just that. hold it. Yeah. Okay. So it's coming off the ground and it's perfectly balanced. Yeah, How did took, you do that? That took me some time getting that, <laughs> the um, weight distribution. That's it. Yeah, could you hold that chain as well? Mark got it, on. got it. So think huge yellow beams and lots of cogs and wheels and heavy chains and essentially a large metal tube with some green padded straps on it which are dangling it basically um, and what we're doing is uh, identifying how heavy it is yeah here we have some industrial weighing beams so these will weigh up to two tons what yeah so those are the kind of general sizes we're dealing with here so we're releasing the weight now onto the weighing scales The weight off that now. That's 191 kilograms. So here we have our small objects lab. So we do have some small objects. You can pick them up and put them on the table. So we're standing. It's a it's a large space with an opening in the middle, and there's sort of workshop equipment around the side, an air abrasive machine. This huge thing covered in Tyvek. We have. Um, the Nederman extraction, uh, fume extraction arms, so in both sides of the lab and um, smaller portable ones if we're working anywhere else. Off we go. Where are we going now? Uh, we'll go past D2, which is uh, where we have the library and archives, our hempcrete store and the giant walk-in freezer. Oh my god. <laughs> Roller shutter doors. They're humming away there. And that's the freezer. Wow! Some objects currently waiting to go in there. So they're polythene wrapped carriages, aren't they? Uh, here outside the um, freezer, yeah, these have been um, past treated already. They've been uh -huh. frozen. So we're in a massive hangar and there's some like big white marquee tents to our left hand side. Um, a goods lift ahead of us and yeah, on our right-hand side, we've got um, uh, polythene-wrapped objects and uh, is that a shipping container? Is that the freezer? That's the freezer, yeah. It's a large shipping container. And half of the hangar is given over to the library and archives. So oh, brilliant. So space in there. Uh, the hangar is about 400 metres square. So, yeah, it's 200 metres square library. Wow. And archives. <laughs> What's in the tent? Buffer zones. Buffer zones. I'm peeking in. I'm peeking in. It's just a big empty tent. Oh, it's empty at the moment. Yeah. So we have What's normally in there? Um, objects that come uh, in. So new acquisitions, objects waiting to go out, large objects. <laughs> They're big marquees. 
1.6 miles to the other side of the site <laughs> to D4. So this is where we have uh, our aircraft. Oh wow! So D4 is the l large, 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 large object store. Yes. Is that right? And it's a big hangar again. It's crazy driving up and then parking up next to the tiny person-sized door that sits like in the middle of this mass expansive wall of your store. So we're going into the sort of human entrance, aren't we? Oh my god. Can you go? Oh my god! <gasps> it's huge! So that's a Lockheed Super Constellation. The big plane? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's <laughs> said, the least in the know about aircraft. So describe what we're seeing, Simon. So we have right in front of you, you have the uh, Constellation. So this was... It's a plane! It's an aircraft, yeah. <laughs> so this was the... Uh, Rolling Stones Pacific tour bus in the 1970s. <laughs> what? And then there's larger aircraft dotted around it, but dwarfed by the yeah. Constellation. DC-3, De Havilland Dove, and multiple vehicles. So we have racks full of push bikes, racks full of motorcycles, and freestanding cars, engines. So yeah, it's, they all look quite small in here. but They do! <laughs> but they are big. Are we going to walk around? Yeah. So yeah, to our left is a rack of bicycles of different ages, um, strapped to pallets. Some buses. Um, is that a fire engine? Yeah, there's a Dennis fire engine, a telephone box, TV detection van. Oh my God. Now we're walking under a plane wing. Cash. We're under the conservation wing. In front we have the De Havilland Dragon. And the De Havilland Dragon Rapide. Another plane. Yeah, <laughs> it's nice. So we're standing now roughly in the middle, I suppose, of this gigantic space. Yep. And you forget, I'm forgetting to realise how big it is. And then there's just another aircraft just that barely takes up any of the space yep. that you've got available to you. Uh, large traction engine, the Empress of India. Um, we have two rows of cars here. So uh, one of my favourite parts of the museum is a rack. 12 metres high, full of motorcycles. <laughs> <laughs> How do you get these up there? So, we, at the end, we have our reach truck, a one and a half tonne truck, with a, uh, which can go right up to the 12 metre. Pluck them off the top, so yeah, we, um, we're all trained on forklift trucks here. So it's the only way uh, we can get round. Uh, well, basically, storing the objects and uh -huh. retrieving them. Yeah. So Simon's just opened the door of a vehicle um, to check the moth trap that's sitting inside it. Do you tend to get moth infestations in your vehicles? Uh, not generally. Um, yeah, we've been quite good for a while, but it's good to keep on top of the uh, ones in here because it's been an uncontrolled mm -hmm. environmental space, gaps in the old hangar doors and things like that. So we're just driving from D4, the large objects store, and we're driving past... Um, Building one, which is huge. It is absolutely huge. That's going to be the small object store and new lab space and stuff. 80% of the collection is going to be, of the Science Museum Group's collection, will be stored in there. Wow. So, 
small to large objects. And we're going to have a look at it when we get upstairs in this other building that we're sitting outside of. Uh, a A1? Yeah, so this is A1. This is um, built in 1994, so this is an environmentally controlled building. All the other hangars are, as you imagine, non-environmentally controlled at all. <laughs> drafty. Yeah, drafty. Yeah, they have to be 1,800% relative humidity with fluctuations uh, mirroring that of the external conditions here in Rawton. So yeah, this is split. We have um, all the ground floor for our medium to large objects. And upstairs we have some welfare facilities and our textile store. So this building is more of a sort of set of rooms, isn't it? Though this is a huge, huge room, it's actually quite small com in comparison to what we've just been in. <laughs> this is the outer loading bay. Uh, it works as an airlock system ah. for the inner loading bay so you can't open the um, both doors at the same time. Either side of the building we have A1 which is our mobile racking for the medium sized objects on small pallets. The other side is A2, confusingly called. <laughs> In A1 we have A1, A2 and A3. Oh great, well, <laughs> that clears so, that up. Yeah. So. On the A2 store we have our custom built large pallets so they're up to two tons. Oh my god, wow. So it's back to the full height of the building, 12 meters. It is a system that allows us to gain twice as much uh, object space as a normal static rack, as they all, each rack is a mobile unit, which has its good and bad points. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just describe what happened there. Um, a roller shutter went up and the lights went on and we are now standing in front of the most compressed large object storage I have ever seen. If you imagine like the kind of roller racking that many of us will be familiar with in libraries and archives and stuff, this is huge and everything is on pallets and it's so compressed and so efficient this is such an efficient way of storing so yeah it's great if you can double the double your space like i said it does have its drawbacks you'll need um, a very narrow aisle forklift truck to access the objects right as in other mobile racking units annual inspections so it is quite costly doubling the space here wasn't really necessary for the science museum mm -hmm. Uh, we're not short on space, uh -huh. yeah. so it's been a good learning curve for this. Right. So, but yeah, like the other buildings, the racking has an end of life. That's why we're starting to explore. Right. I see. Storing hence building one. I'm looking at this thinking. This is storage goals, but so much work and expense has yeah, gone into this, hasn't it? Very expensive um, method of racking. Uh, I'll open up one of the. Yes, please. Aisles. So this is our kind of medium-sized mm -hmm. objects. Fridge freezers, cookers, aero engines, huge computers. We'll have a, we'll have a look down through. It's amazing! You can see the amount of engineering that goes into uh, a rack like this. There we go. Wow! Now we can enter. So <laughs> this giant compressed cube of museum objects just parted for us like the Red Sea. And when it stopped, it just, it just stopped. Nothing moved. There was maybe a tiny, the tiniest bit of wobble, but yeah. everything on here is very stable. so stable. 
and which is just as well considering that how I mean what do you think is the heaviest or what's the the weight range do you think of objects that are on here uh, well the pallets will take up to a ton but the wow. uh, racks themselves they're uh, 13 tons can we walk down yeah. <gasps> wow oh, we have engines. everything is interesting <laughs> And fridge a fridge freezer. freezer. <laughs> I'm looking out for things that I might have put on pallets. <laughs> so we're still walking. Still walking. Machines. Dentist's chair. Ooh. <laughs> and we've just about got to the end. Wow. Right, should we uh, have a look at the forklift? What are we going to do on the forklift? Uh, we'll take an object off the uh, rack. <gasps> How exciting! So there's a different type of forklift we have here for this particular racking because it's uh, a very narrow aisle. So again, uh, another cost to it because it requires a different license. Right. Oh right. Um, to the normal uh, forklifts, the reach trucks we have on site. The whole cab goes up as well, so <gasps> it allows you to uh, more easily access the top of the rack. And so. see what you're doing as well. Simon has climbed into the driver's seat. I'm not allowed because you need training. I need to take an object off the rack for a loan, so I'll get it out now. Oh wow, so it pivot. The wheels are, I don't know what to call them officially, but it means you can essentially spin on the spot. So he's just backed it into the right position and now he's backing down the aisle in this sort of very narrow kind of vehicle with a huge tower on it and forks and I'm staying a safe distance back. Imagine heavy lifting equipment and flashing orange lights. He's up, he's going up. So as you can imagine, your object locations have to be really thorough because otherwise you've got to be at 12 metres high and trying to search for your object. Object acquired! This is perfect for audio, as I'm sure you'll agree. That was done with absolute minimum of fuss. <laughs> I've got my object down, I'll condition report that next week. So how long did you how long did it take you to feel comfortable with this and is this a, this kind is this kind yeah. of normal equipment for warehouse use? Uh, yeah, you'll find the narrow wild trucks and the pickers in Amazon warehouses and Tesco's. It probably it took me about say 3 4 months to get fully uh -huh, comfortable. Yeah. We're not taking objects off here at rapid paces like they do in Amazon. We do take no, our, yeah. uh, our, our absolute most time upstairs to the textile store but we can get a good vantage point from there to see building one brilliant oh so there's a little cozy little kitchen up here in this building oh oh it's a tiny room by comparison but huge <laughs> also oh lovely think aisles and aisles of hung costume covered Oh wow! And sealed bags of asbestos warning. What? What asbestos. is asbestos in the um, in the garment? It'll, there'll be um, a firefighter's uniform. Ah! So, yeah. Sealed, bagged. Oh, and roll textiles. <laughs> What's down here? Mm. Oh, timetables and yeah, diagrams and stuff. 
bits of embroidery. It's a huge variety, isn't it? Yeah, all your area of experts. Big <laughs> <laughs> lumpy bits of metal. Mine. <laughs> Don't get to come up here very often. The view of building one from the doorway here. Wow. Science Museum Group Home of Collections. So it'll be 80% of the collection stored in there. 91 metres wide, 289 metres long. So that gives us a square metrage of 26,000 metres squared with wow. a 9,000 metre squared uh, mezzanine. Wow. So this is where Blythe House will be rehomed. And also other facilities in there will have purpose-built objects lab, paper and textiles lab. I'm quite looking forward to my objects lab. <laughs> I have a five-ton gantry crane. So. What? <laughs> Which will be remote controlled, so no no know, hefting on chains hefting anymore. Chains, yeah. In comparison, you know, a really good space over in the engineering building. But again, yeah, it's a sort of retrofitted old mm -hmm. RAF yeah. maintenance building. So yeah, this is going to be mm -hmm. it's going to be fantastic. We'll have collections access here for up to about fifteen thousand visitors a year. So that's public open days and mm -hmm. um, school visits, and we'll continue our collections researchers as well. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Simon, for showing no me round. Yeah. It's amazing. So we're really privileged to have you uh, allow us to come in. Thank you <laughs> thank very you. much. All right. Thanks, Ruby. Anyway, that sounds like a really amazing place to visit, by the way. So I actually had a, an hour and a half of recording time that I oh had my to God. edit down to yeah. 10 minutes. Um, that is well done. Alex, you're very lucky to work there. I know it's got its quirks. Yeah, it's great, yeah. But it's I a, really it's do a really enjoy fantastic it. Yeah. place to work. Oh, I suppose something else to mention is like, we haven't really gone into it, but um, because we talked about how industrial stuff can sometimes be built into buildings. Yeah. But of course, sometimes the building with the industrial stuff in it is actually the collection. If you see what I mean, like working um, mills yeah, and working yeah, course, uh, that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. So, you know, I know that that's working objects mm -hmm. and like, in fact, a whole working setting, yeah. uh, which is really cool. But just shout out to the people who are on those because that's a really bad act and mm. very very much mm. full-time mm -hmm. job mm -hmm. well done for keeping those things going yeah. and keeping yeah. them safe and just doing amazing amazing work like that's so yeah. cool when you see that yeah. stuff i like i live for going to places like that it's so cool yeah croft and beam engines good yeah good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so where can people go if they need a bit more like guidance and information about uh, working with these things yeah there's several guidelines out there um also the big stuff conference oh nice has, uh, yeah, 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 that's good fun. That is. They have all their papers published online. Excellent. So I'll put a link to the yeah, absolutely to the uh, website on there. Mm -hmm. um, there has been the uh, museum and galleries larger objects. Oh yeah, conservation guidelines from the nineties, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They're quite old now. Recently, been the Association of British Transport and Engineering's uh, museums have brought out um an updated guideline which oh, is going to be yeah. more of a live document so they're going to be putting in case studies i think that's available online as well oh good as stuff. a free download or you can buy the book yeah there's some really good information in there and um oh there's a really good um book by david morrison as well oh, i nice. recommend everyone read uh that's time that. capsule fighter oh yeah so that's about his um the conservation of the vault corsair at the Fleet Air Arm Museum. Right, so we've talked about loads of different types of big objects. Uh, we talked about sculpture and obviously science and industry and also vehicles, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. including military ones. 
and then we did think of fossils in the end, which is great. <laughs> oh, and, yeah, yeah, And yeah, agricultural fossils. things. Agriculture, which, yeah. Yeah, so actually we did span quite a few things there, which is great. And architectural bits. Uh, something we didn't talk about was monuments and sites, mm. which is also a type of large heritage that yes, people do look after. Yeah. Um, but that tends to be much more, much more kind of looking after the landscape around mm, the monuments yeah, and that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. But, you know, it's stuff like, same with working with buildings, it can be about things like stopping erosion and mm-hmm. all that stuff. Uh, and there was a talk that I went to recently at, at the Museums Association exhibition bit, which was about um, a building in Scotland, which they're trying to look after and they're essentially building a kind of a cube around oh, cool. to stop it decaying. The Macintosh. That's correct. That's going to uh, entirely... Yes. Yeah, I have opinions about that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> I, I can, I can tell. I can absolutely tell. <laughs> Ashley, do you, do you want to get into it? I feel like the conservation of buildings is a whole episode topic on its oh, own. It, it absolutely is. Mm. But why would you is. change the entire vista? Like, why? <laughs> I know, I know it's no, deteriorating, no. I get it, yes, but no, why, I know. why it's like... I know, and this, this, is oh. the kind of, this is the kind of discussions that people are having, especially when it's like a big ancient monuments, that yeah, sort of thing, yeah, yeah, because yeah. They, they have the same kind of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was especially something that um, I looked at years ago in Malta, for example, where yeah. they've had to build, basically, um, coastal erosion shelters around old temples and stuff like that. And it is one of those things that it is a way of managing change, sure. But then what are the kind of trade-offs for that and Mm. all that stuff, right? So it is super interesting to talk about. And yes, there should totally be an episode on that. (laughs) Uh, But I'm glad you have opinions. So yeah, we didn't really talk that much about monuments and buildings, but then that's kind of a different ballpark as well. But Mm -hmm. it is very much part of like working with huge things Mm -hmm. because kind of massive. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I think we've covered quite, quite a few bits there. And thanks very much to Simon for joining us. No, thank you for having thank me both. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for Peter. Today I'm reviewing The Conservation of Sculpture Parks, edited by Sajita Sunara and Andrew Thorne, published in 2018 by Archetype Publications. This book is a collection of 14 papers presented at the International Spark, Sculpture Parks, get it, conference in Croatia in 2015 plus a write-up of the roundtable discussion at the event. And it really covers a lot of ground for a publication that doesn't outstay its welcome. Its focus is sometimes more about management and less about intervention, but we'll get into that in a bit. For the material geeks out there, I'm pleased to report that a wide variety of materials are covered. Wood, metals, ceramic, stone, concrete, composites, etc, etc. Something I love about this book is that the case studies within comes from a really broad range of places geographically, and thus deals with a variety of climates and challenges. The papers are from Poland, Croatia, Slovenia, Austria, Italy, Spain, Denmark, the UK, Australia and the US. These sculpture parks can be found in urban and rural settings, in forests and deserts, inland and on the coast. And something that delighted me in particular is that it included a cemetery and a more broadly defined landscape park as well, which expanded the scope a little from just carefully curated contemporary art and eccentric artists' indulgences to areas of more monumental nature. Because sculpture parks have been established since around the mid-1900s, most of the sculptures covered in the book are relatively modern but the challenges are widely applicable to anyone who cares for something that's kept outdoors. Many conservators have at least some sort of lump of outdoor heritage, whether that's public art or some old pieces of industrial equipment or architectural rubble that won't fit in a store. And don't flinch like that. I know it's important rubble. Anyway, back to the content. 
Some of these papers are a little slim on the conservation details, referring only vaguely to cleaning methods and appropriate materials. And something I found frustrating throughout the chapters was the tendency to keep reiterating that we made the correct decision here, please don't be mad, and sorry we couldn't use something more conservation friendly, we're not able to get that here. Guys, it's okay. I don't know who hurt you, but if you talk me through a decision-making process, I'm not going to be writing angry letters about using epoxy. However, I am pleased to report that the odd paper does give a good level of treatment detail, and there's even a couple of authors in there who are happy to talk about their rigorous material testing. So don't despair. I'd also like to give a tiny high five to the one author who came across as positively feisty and happily waved the, hey, we have to use really hardcore materials because it's outdoors people flag, which I really loved. But I shan't name drop them just in case they feel awkward about that. As you might expect, the common problems encountered throughout the book are related to things being displayed outdoors and with no environmental control whatsoever. Aside from your usual problems with corrosion, cracking, warping, insects and the odd spot of vandalism, my favourites include ferocious fungi and willful woodpeckers. Speaking of damage, I quite like that the book covers enough different angles that we get to read about the polar opposite ways of handling touch. Some parks found visitor touch so damaging that they started educating people about the damage being caused, while others view public tactile interaction as the very purpose of the park's existence. I also really liked that the parks can range from not hoity-toity, but very arty and serious, to completely playful, and I really, really enjoyed that. Because of the contemporary nature of these works of art, there's a lot of artist dialogue in this book, and the negotiations between conservators and artists don't always work well. Some do, of course, but there are a lot of questions about the level of intervention, artist intent, choice of materials, and what will happen when the artists are no longer around to be consulted. Some authors sound more exasperated than others, and I had a rueful chuckle at some of the chapters where the conservators clearly felt the artist should have taken material stability into account before creating the artwork, but vision won over intent. Something I took away from this book was that the conservation profession is treated very differently across the world. It's not always conservators carrying out these assessments of the artworks, and some even expressed that they were being undercut by admittedly skilled stonemasons or very much not skilled happy-go-lucky amateurs, which resulted in work being done by the lowest bidder and with very little input from conservation professionals. But I think that's probably around for another day. Another thing I really appreciated about this book was how some of the papers addressed difficult topics like political tension and public disapproval. Art stirs up a lot of emotions, and it's not surprising that in countries experiencing a surge in right-wing policies, some sculptures are very much under fire and at risk of removal. This type of disassociation and destruction should be taken just as seriously as wind and water ingress, and as conservators we must do our best to protect heritage for everyone, and not just the powers that be. This paperback has 192 pages, full-colour illustrations, and costs £39.50p from the publisher's website, or around 80 US dollars for American customers. If you care for anything that's kept outdoors, I'd definitely give this a read. Dear Jane, I have a chance to go to Florence the place where conservation really took off after the 1966 flood. Is there some way, some place, where one can see examples of what techniques developed there, what worked, what didn't, and so on? The history of conservation surely ought to be of interest to someone beside me. Dear inquirer who's going to Florence, first may I say how sorry I am how long it's taken me to answer. Of all the seaward inquiries, 
I have ever been given. This has proved to be the most fun, most challenging and most amount of work to try to get you an answer. But I have recruited the absolute fantastic network of C-word aunties and uncles to help me as this was well beyond my expertise. So in that quest, I asked two people to help me, Fiona McAllister and Barbara Catanio. And I'm just going to give you a synopsis of the advice that they've given. So Fiona McAllister said that back in 2016, there was a lot of exhibits. So there wasn't a lot of interest. It was the 50th anniversary then. And there was quite a lot of events, not all of which are still available. There was a film by Zeffirelli and that was shown at um, the AICCAC um, Joint Conference in Montreal in 2016. So you might be able to find that film before you go as part of your research. You may have already gone and I do apologise. But Fiona wasn't aware of any permanent displays in Florence about the impact of the conservation techniques in and of themselves. But there are things like plaques around the city that you could go and see. Um, for example, the ones that show how the high the waters were near Duomo. But the other thing that um, Fiona recommended that was I spoke to Barbara Cataneo from the Biblioteca Nazionale Centrale di Firenze. Because this, the National Library... Um, really keeps the memory alive of the flood in terms of the way that they plan exercises, do their emergency preparedness planning, have developed and researched treatment techniques and um, share that information in the community in which they work. Both um, Fiona and Barbara recommend that you go and see some of the critical items from the flood, one of which is the sea Simabua crucifix. I looked up so many of the words and forgot to look that one up. Um, And that was the one that a lot of people discussed about whether or not you, the the level of conservation was correct or not. Um, That's on display in the Museo di Santa Croce. That, uh, I have links from all of these things, not from me, but from my wonderful helpers, which I will pass on to Jenny and Chloe for the show notes. Now, Barbara is also recommending that you visit the National Library, the Opificio della Pietra Dure, which is where she works, and the Gabinetto GP Viesu. The National Library is, I think, seems to be coming across as the central place. They had more than 100,000 items damaged the floods. And the National Library then researched lots of different methods for treatment. They looked at ethylene oxide, ETO fumigation, drying techniques, heat, tobacco, things that were used at the heat, sorry, that used at the tobacco and ceramic factories such as sawdust and talc. And they evaluated quite a lot of those. They found, in my own experience of a tiny flood, was that although freezing is what is recommended, it's very hard to get hold of in a flood because of problems with electricity supply and everybody else wanting freezes. So what really Barbara is pointing you to is to go along to the library and see some of the, the work that's been in practice. Um, one of the issues that she's describing that they still have problems with is the limp vellum bindings. These were common in the 1500s but they, they really struggled through the flood. They had Christopher Clarkson in and he's given them, he, he came up with a new design for these um, bindings and they are working on those now on the 1500s and 1600s books. On the plus side from the floods, and we do like to look at optimism, is that at the time of the floods, some young conservators were trained up, Peter Walters and Anthony Kearns get a mention, and they um, have really become, develop their skills and become experts and highly proficient in their field and become great masters in conservation. Now, I've been talking all about the conservation that has been done and you can visit the conservation labs, um, which is fantastic. And you can even watch a documentary 
to see what the conservation lab looked like back in 1968, which is on YouTube. So again, I'll be passing the link to the wonderful SeaWorld team and that will be available to you. So the other place that Barbara Catanio recommended was the Gabinetto GP Visu, an archive of relevant cultural personalities from the 19th and 20th century, which was also flooded. And they recovered quite a lot of paper and photographic materials. And she recommends that you visit them. She also recommends, and um, it does look beautiful because I've been looking at it on the YouTube videos, the Operficio della Pietra Duri, which is where a lot of things like metals and sculptures, and again, this is where the um, the Simabu crosses that um, Fiona recommended that you went to see, uh, and there's all sorts of things um, like doors um, from the cathedral by Ghiberti, and there was quite a lot of other things there to go and see. So I will pass on the extensive notes. I wish you well in your exploration of Venice. It's, I'm sure you're going to have or have had an absolutely fantastic time. And I'd just like to say how inspired I am to be a member of a conservation community where I can write to all sorts of people saying, hello, you've never met me. I have met Fiona before, but would you help me with this question? And the generosity and kindness from one conservator to another is genuinely inspirational. I hope it's been helpful. Over and out. And as usual, we welcome your comments, questions and corrections. This time we've had a couple of people write in. Uh, we've got a message from the Icon Book and Paper Group that the Fred Behrman Research Grant opens for applications on December 1st. It's open to any Icon members so long as it's related to books, paper and archives in some way. They're especially open to more innovative applications. So definitely get your thinking caps on if you're doing anything with books and paper. The next one is from some conservation colleagues in Canada. Uh, there's a fundraiser to start a reconciliation working group within the Canadian Association for Conservation of Cultural Property. They are currently raising money for a consultation process and a launch event for the group. It's a really worthwhile course. We're going to link to the fundraising page and basically it sounds amazing. So this is a way of working more closely with source communities in Canada and I'm really thrilled to see this sort of thing being started. The funds raised will go towards the travel for consultations with First Nations, Inuit and Matisse. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that correctly organizations and cultural centers across Canada, uh, organizational workshops and training events, translation services, ways of collecting feedback, online meeting software for efficient group meetings, paying a researcher to assist a group, honoraria and gifts of appreciation for speakers and consultants, and online training fees. There is more detail on the fundraising page, uh, but this is amazing. And can I just say shout out to these people for actually paying people they want to consult with. You need money to make these sorts of things work. So please, please, please do check out their fundraiser. It looks really good. And I cannot wait to see this thing take off. Thanks, guys. You're an absolute inspiration. And finally, we have a correction from Evelyn. In our last episode about diversity, we said that uh, Young Canada Works is wholly funded by the government. That was not correct. Uh, Young Canada Works is a program that's asking for 25 to 50% of wages to be uh, funded by the employers. So that's just a correction there. Thanks so much for getting in touch, Evelyn. As usual, if you've got anything on your mind, do let us know. Tweet us, email us, reach out in any way you can. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you.
If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. Well, it's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. We're the C word and you've been listening to Simon Stevens, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about knowing not to. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. the conservatives podcast are you are you gonna giggle are you gonna giggle no i was i was gonna slurp my tea noisily you know i'll f it slurp your tea everyone have a sip